When I meet people who have had really dreadful experiences, I've stopped trying to explain anything. I don't have theological debates. I aim with every fibre of my being to not judge people, not try to convict people, but just to love them and leave God to do the other stuff. Welcome everybody, this is Simon Gilbo with Inspired. It's great to be back with you for another fantastic podcast. I have no doubt that you're going to be moved and challenged and stirred in your faith. Basically, if you're new to us, Inspired is is all about telling stories of overcoming triumphant faith with all that that gets uh, thrown at us in life. And we're listening and bombarded daily by non-stop bad news. And I just want to introduce you to fantastic people that I've had the joy of uh, of meeting and become my friends over the years who tell a different story, not necessarily an easy sugar-coated story, but the reality of nitty-gritty faith. And my goodness, as, as an intro, that would be embodied by my friend, Faye Smith. Welcome, Faye. Hello and welcome back. Thank you. It's great to have you. And Faye, well, Faye has been through a lot in her life and we're going to hear about that. We've, I reckon we go back about 20 years, again, through the New Wine Network, uh, also connecting in Sheffield, where she, she's been living for a long time. Uh, her son, Zach, is fabulous. I, I picture him as a young man, but he's now more than a young man. He's, he's, yeah, he's 26 city. now. Yeah, working in city in London, very gifted guy. He actually helped us out with the, the glow stall. Both of you, you've we've had thoughts of getting out to Burundi. It hasn't yet happened, but hopefully will. And Faye is the founder of Hope Walking, amongst many other things that we're going to be addressing now. But listen, Faye, let's, let's go right back. Give us a bit of context of your background. Go for it. Wow. Wow. It's always hard to tell one's life story in brief. But I think way back at the beginning, it's important to start at the beginning. And it's only recently I've come to realise quite how prof- profoundly important being relinquished by my birth mother at nine days old and being adopted at six weeks old in the 60s was in my life. Right. And uh, I moved to Sheffield when I was six weeks old and have grown up there ever since. And uh, that rejection, abandonment and an early childhood trauma has definitely been a big part of my life and has massively affected my faith journey. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the life choices that I've made. So for sure, if anyone's listening who is adopted, it's an interesting and very challenging road. And I hadn't realised until my 50s quite how profoundly it had affected me. I thought I'd been one of the lucky ones brought up in a nice aspirational middle-class family in a lovely city surrounded by beautiful countryside and privately educated from the age of 11, went to university, met a wildly charismatic, uh, handsome and uh, hugely intelligent chap, got married. And I thought I was on that kind of middle-class trajectory. And since then, my life's absolutely fallen apart. So if we go back to where it all started with that baby, for me, in terms of my faith journey, Mm -hmm. that's where the Lord came in because my mum became a Christian when I was three years old. And I was adopted twice over, Simon. That's what I profoundly believe. And that's unshakable in me that God chose me for his family. You know, that beautiful scripture that I chose when I was confirmed at 13 about 
um, God seeing your unformed body in the womb. Mm. I am I am absolutely sure that God chose the family I was going to be adopted into, although he didn't intend that I wasn't brought up with my birth family. Once that decision had been made, he um, created a lovely adoptive family for me and then ensured that at three years old, my mum became a Christian. My dad became a Christian when I was about 15. And so I was brought up going to church, Sunday school, Pathfinders, the usual, and yeah. joined an evangelical church at the age of eight, which I've been in its many, many forms and multiplications uh, until about four years ago. Right. And um, so being in a loving environment with a uh, good mum and dad, did, did you have a sort of just a steady progression of faith yourself or were there any sort of dramatic or, or bumpy stages through your teens? Oh, that's all happened much later. Yeah. <laughs> I would say I do remember I had crippling bullying at school from about the age of 13 to 16. Right. My sixth form was bearable, but I had three years of bullying so bad. I just didn't want to be here mm. anymore. It was really horrific. And it was during that time that... I started to question, was there a God and was he real? You know, they say um, God has no grandchildren. Mm -hmm. In other words, you can't assume the faith of your parents or grandparents and just assume you're a Christian. It's a decision that each one of us needs to make for ourselves. And so for me, choosing at that stage to believe that a God was out there who loved me, who created me, and despite the bad things that were happening to me then at school. But now I realise, of course, dating right back to being an unwanted and relinquished child, Mm. that that God really did love me and want me and would always be there Mm. for me. And I made that decision that at 15, that my life would be better every day if I believed that than that, than if I believed that, all these bad things that were happening to me were random coincidences and that we were all going to die and that was going to be it. And I've never, ever changed my mind in that. So talking university, any any key experiences there? Well, it gets more interesting because the church that my mum had joined when I was eight, the evangelical church, uh, had been very caring, very nurturing. I'd received a lot of healing in that church but that's also the church that spawned the nine o'clock service. Oh, wow. which, which most people won't know, so, so just very briefly say what happened. Yeah, uh, well, folk can look it up if they wish, but the nine o'clock service became uh, ultimately a cult and I'd been one of the founder members. It was one of the most exciting places yeah. to be in the UK, in church. I think at one point, 140 young people from the club scene were baptised or confirmed in one evening by the bishop. It was incredible, exciting, different, wild. And I was part of it for the first, oh, I guess, 18 Mm -hmm. months. And it imploded many years later. But I was fortunate and I feel that God's hand was really there at that time because I had started dating my first proper boyfriend at 19. And... He had been a Methodist, was returning to his faith, which um, he had kind of not walked away from, but but had um, eluded him. And he had 
come along to the nine o'clock service and found it just too much. He couldn't cope. So for him, our six o'clock service was his way back into mm. faith. And I decided that my journey with him was more important than loyalty to the nine o'clock service. And I think that saved right. me, Simon, yeah. to be honest, because I then left that church, which imploded, I guess, I don't know, about eight years later, something like yeah. that. And uh, and uh, I, I rejoined the more mainstream six o'clock service. And that was a very exciting time. We had John Wimber coming over. And for those that don't know about John Wimber, it was real signs and wonders ministry, legs growing, blind eyes seeing, that whole thing. And again, even within the six o'clock service, it was the most incredible place to be. The church was growing exponentially and it was standing room only in four services on a Sunday. Mm -hmm. So one really felt that one was absolutely at the cutting edge of Christianity, growth and God working today in power in middle-class Western culture, yeah. which was quite mm. amazing. Uh, were you always going to go into business? I think I'd had, obviously, the role model of my dad being self-employed. Um, I'd always wanted to be self-employed, but I'd, I'd uh, gone into retail management from university and then gone into training, become a fully qualified trainer and ended up being head of sales and marketing in a big business, 135 staff uh, in the business. I was on the executive board of directors by 29 wow. And uh, that was my, what I call my big job. <laughs> that was my big career. I was nine years in that organization. Um, and then I felt a real call to have a family. I would say until then, I was so bound up in my career. Um, now I see that as a result of my adoption, I really found my identity in work. Yeah, that makes sense. And I just wasn't sure that I could even face having a baby. I wondered if I loved my inbox more than yeah. a baby. Um, but I actually went to uh, a weekend away with an amazing Christian woman called Leanne Payne. Mm -hmm. Some of your listeners may remember the incredible ministry of Leanne Payne. And I remember having some healing during that conference in which... I really felt that I could say yes to the idea of having children. And I was pregnant fairly soon after at the age of 30, now considered an old parent yeah. <laughs> at that time. But obviously we have our babies much later now. So I had my son, Zach, and four years later, my daughter, Gabby. And uh, I knew when I had Zach that I wouldn't go back to work full time. And so I made the profound decision to relinquish that career step away, work part-time in project management for the same company for a while. And then when Gabby was born, I took voluntary severance and I started my own business when she was six months old. And I was rocking her in one of those car rocking seats alongside me as, a, as I did my introduction to self-employment, of course. <laughs> and I've been self-employed for 22 years ever mm. since. And so um, you, you, you'd met this dynamic, charismatic uh, man, as you talk about, and he was a lawyer. And so... Uh, things initially going really well? Well, interestingly enough, Simon, he was heading up the training company that I'd actually applied for his job right. and he got it. And uh, so they also employed me to head up a different project. Um, we got to know each other fairly briefly in the workplace because I was headhunted and left there nine months later. But it was on the night I left that we went out for a goodbye drink and we were engaged five weeks wow. later and married five months later. He asked me immediately, we got engaged, whether I would consider putting him back 
through university to finish the law degree he'd started Mm -hmm. so he could retrain to become a lawyer. And that's what I did. And that made life very challenging because I was earning for both Mm -hmm. of us for a long time. But um, I considered it speculating to accumulate, Simon. I wanted him to live his dream. And uh, I now realise that he had likely had a breakdown at university, which is why he hadn't completed his degree in the first Mm -hmm. case. And um, there was always that mental health difficulty there, but we blind our eyes to what we don't want to see. And I do believe God had a a plan in all of it, not that our marriage wouldn't survive, but that um, Zach would be born and Gabby would be born and I'd learn a huge amount of very painful lessons from the process, Mm -hmm. which has made me a far more empathic and compassionate person. Well, listen, I mean, uh, I don't want to uh, pry, but can you share as much as you feel you can share about it and how it went wrong and and lessons learned? I would be happy to do so, yes. I think what I've discovered is that this adoptive baby in me wanted to fix everybody, Mm. (laughs) my clients, my co-workers, my husbands. And so I naturally draw people to me who are wounded and damaged in some Mm -hmm. way. And unfortunately for me, what I was doing was taking the place of Jesus and trying to be Jesus to them, which is good, but I was taking it to a whole new level of sacrifice and caring and controlling in a way, trying to fix everything for other people at my own expense. And so um, I have had two men in my life, one I married and the other I became engaged to, um, a relationship which imploded three years ago. And both of those men have had severe childhood trauma, Mm. which has caused them to become highly avoidant and not securely attached, and also to become trapped in addiction. And I've realized that those were the people I was attracted to because I believed it was my duty under God and as a person to fix them. And I've just spent three years unwinding Mm. that. And I can honestly say hand on heart that I'm now around people who are facing a lot of difficulties and challenges on the walks I lead in my life. And a huge driver in me has gone, which was trying to fix everybody else. And I attracted a man whose coping mechanism was misusing alcohol and being dependent on Mm -hmm. alcohol. And I had a very challenging 21-year relationship, seven years still married but apart, 14 years together, 13 of them married before that, trying to... I would say help him fix himself, but now I would say fix mm. him. And um, and people resent those who try and fix them. And they may think they want to be fixed initially, but actually the only person who can change us is us. Mm. <laughs> as, as most of us know, but sometimes it's a head knowledge, not a heart yeah. knowledge. And I think for me, the most dangerous aspect of Christianity that I absorbed was that it was my job to fix people. I did that from my own upbringing, being a woman, being a caring person, being taught within several strands of evangelical teaching that I absorbed to be submissive. Mm -hmm. 
and to be a supporter for men. So all of that brought me to a place where I felt it was my duty to fix people, I think. And of course, if one extrapolates that to everyone's going to hell unless you save Mm -hmm. them, that becomes even more of a concrete life jacket, really, that you're carrying that burden of trying to save everybody else, not just emotionally, but also spiritually. And uh, and that's what I've been unwinding and reworking over mm-hmm. the last three years. Yeah, so I, he became controlling, is that right? He wasn't actually physically abusive? No, it was emotional abuse and he was very controlling. But of course, anybody who's suffering from an addiction mm. is by definition a narcissist mm. because the addiction becomes the most important thing in your life and feeding that addiction is critical. And so it's very hard for anyone stuck in addiction to be empathic. You imagine the guy who's hooked on heroin, breaking into your house, stealing all your valuables, you know, that precious ring of your grandmother's or trashing your house, looking for stuff, making making you feel super fearful now you don't go out anymore. You, you yeah. know, all of those kinds of things. That person is not thinking, I wonder what my behavior is going to do to the person whose house I'm breaking mm. into. They are controlled by the addiction and that's all they can yeah. think of. And for those of us who might find that we're with people stuck in addiction, and I've been surrounded by women who've opened up their lives to me, whose husbands have been stuck in a wide range of addictions. It might be um, gambling or porn or overeating or smoking or whatever it is. And the cry of our hearts is, why are we not enough for that person to change their habits and their addictions and of course unfortunately that is the case we aren't yeah. enough because the addiction is is the thing and so um i realized to my horror as our marriage started to unravel and at that point simon i had the embarrassment of realizing that here i was in one of britain's largest and fastest growing evangelical churches and me and my husband were leading the marriage preparation and enrichment yeah. work and my own marriage was unraveling. Yeah. And I couldn't even admit that to myself. I struggled to admit it to the people around mm-hmm. me. And when I did, they were finding that very difficult to cope with. And I was under a lot of familial pressure. And, and my mum would admit this. Um, to My mum was then the, the head of the healing and counselling team at church to admit that my own marriage was unraveling and was becoming untenable yeah. and that... Actually, I was brought so low that in its dying stages, I didn't want to be here anymore. I was in so much emotional yeah. pain. Oh, dear. So it was very, very Horrific. difficult. Yeah. So you sort of lasted seven years of separation, is that right? Yeah, I decided to maintain my marital vows and keep separated. That was actually not what my minister had um had encouraged me to do. He had said, your marriage is a plate and you both have a half and your husband's walked off with his half. It's broken and it's never coming back together, Faye. You need to release yourself from your marriage vows. And he encouraged me to move on and find somebody else. But I just didn't feel I could do Mm. that. And now I realise that was the adoptive baby in me clinging on desperately and the fixer. trying to believe that God would fix this as I'd always believed the God of miracles who can have blind eyes see and 
legs regrow and people come back from the dead could bring my marriage back from the dead. So I hung on and hung on and hung on for seven long years. And I'd say to any people, man or woman listening to this, who's in that position, I always say to anyone who's asked me, what would I do? Um, what should they do? Of course, I don't give advice. I simply say, I chose to hang on as long as I mm-hmm. could. I did as much as I could for as long as I could. So I never had any reason to remonstrate with myself and for my children to be able to turn around to me and say, you didn't do enough, mum. You know, if they were to say that and they've never said that, um, then my defence would be I did as much as I could for as long Mm -hmm. as I could. And that's what I did. But after seven years, I remember going to a soaking evening, one of those where you lie on the floor while worship music plays and, and you just listen to what the Father has to say to you. And I was lying on a church carpet in another church um, with a friend of mine. And I felt God say to me, one of the few moments when I felt God powerfully speak Mm -hmm. to me, and I felt him say, Faye, there are two tragedies here. One is that your marriage failed, and I never wanted that, but it has, it's Mm -hmm. failed. And the second is that you're still carrying it around like a corpse attached to you. The dead marriage is still attached to you. And I felt Father say to me, there's only things you do, two things you do with a corpse, Faye. You bury them or you cremate them. Mm. But here you are with a dead marriage and you're still lugging the dead body around and it smells. And at that moment, I knew that I could take that decree nice side that had been sat there for six years because we'd had to do a financial separation because of the complexities of the um of the settlement and the debt and all the other stuff um but that i now needed to make that divorce absolute Mm. and that's what i Mm. did and tragically my husband died then about four or five months later right Oh, Faye. So listen, again, I don't want to pry too much, but, um, you know, what can you share on that part of your life? Well, I'm always very conscious, Simon, when I tell this story, that it's not just my story, no. is it? It's also my children's mm. story. So so your listeners understand I'd been seven years, as you say, um, maintaining my marital vows with my children. We were parenting together, but from different houses. So... Um, because of my husband's increasing alcoholism, he he bought a legal practice, a high street legal practice, and I would say that was a bit like a brain surgeon buying a GP surgery. Mm. He found it very difficult. He thought he could do it, and it became more and more difficult. The recession was biting. His stuff started to leave, and as the pressure grew, he drank more and more. So the children were um, two and six when our marriage broke down and at this stage they would be 10 and 14 Mm. and it was clear that their dad's business was failing and that he was becoming more and more unwell and drinking more and more heavily Uh, he'd been banned for drink driving for two years Um, there were a lot of complexities around where he was at but he was still able to have them every other weekend and one night in the week for tea to keep in touch with them. But it's very hard as a child, it's hard as anybody to watch the person you love most breaking down in front of you. And it was very painful for all of us. And it got to the stage where at the Christmas, not long after the divorce had been made final, 
we discovered that he'd had to surrender his legal practice back to the Law Society and he was well into a nervous breakdown mm. and the children became very concerned that he might take his own life and um, my son is very intelligent and had worked out that in the midst of losing everything that could be a way out for his father and they both begged him to stay alive for them and he'd promised them he would but unfortunately he wasn't able to keep that promise and having had a breakdown over the Christmas in the March he took his own life and that was incredibly tragic and painful for everyone involved. And I think at 10 and 14, my children had to face that terrible trauma. And they had found it hard enough when we'd separated and the ramifications of that, but now their father's death. And for any of your listeners who've experienced suicide, either with friends or family members, it's called a special scar for a reason. It's it's very difficult when someone has chosen to take their own life as a way out. Mm. And it's easier, people would normally say, psychologists would say, when someone has died of natural causes or in an accident because they didn't choose to die. Mm. Suicide is particularly difficult because that person made a choice. And it's easy to say, well, what were they thinking? And of course, what we know who read into this is they weren't thinking anything, they were feeling. And the overwhelming pain yeah. was so great that they were only able to take that way out at that time. Mm. And unfortunately, in my own family, that overwhelming pain of her father transferred to my daughter, who couldn't compute that her father wouldn't stay alive for her. She wasn't able to deal with that emotionally and handle it because everyone handles bereavement, trauma and loss differently. The way I would describe it is that I, a really good thing for me to eat professionally by a nutritionist is peanut butter or almond spread on an oat cake, Mm. (laughs) on an oat oat Mm. biscuit. Now, if you're celiac and you have a nut allergy, Simon, what is incredibly healthy for me and is a good thing for me might actually make you very sick, hospitalise you or even kill you. And so what we absolutely have to do as Christians is stop assuming one size fits Mm -hmm. all. Well, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't say that. I don't know why that's happening. Well, everyone is different and everyone's physical chemistry and emotional damage and background makes us respond to things or even react to things very differently and we can't say well you should you must you ought to and that's one of the massive things I've learned Mm. and so for my daughter her body's reaction was non-epileptic attack disorder and for those listeners of yours who don't know what that is NEAD as it's abbreviated to is a way that trauma is held in the body that causes seizures. So she had a full-blown seizure and had to go to hospital, blue lips, rolling eyes back in the head, the whole thing, in the car, driving her one day, which was absolutely frightening. 
And following that, she started to have mini seizures where her eyelids would flutter. And we were told that she could continue to bathe and cross the road on her own. She was 12 and a half uh, by this stage and she would be okay because these there was no physical cause. They checked her for brain tumour, heart issues and other brain issues. She didn't have epilepsy. This was a psychological condition in which the brain mimics epilepsy because it's so traumatised by life situations. And in fact, um, I would massively recommend any listeners who've been bereaved to talk to care for the mm. family, especially if you've been bereaved of a child. They were incredibly helpful to me. If you've been bereaved by an adult, then Cruz bereavement care were very helpful when my husband died. Uh, but care for the family offer bereaved parents events. And I have met someone through that who found his son tragically hanging in his garage and he yeah. started with full epileptic seizures, wasn't able to drive and had to take medication for that. So it's not unknown. This is one way that some bodies respond to trauma. Yeah. And it was that, that very sadly, two years to the day, on the same day that my husband died, my daughter also oh, died. Dear. And she had a seizure. We we believe, the coroner, coroner believes, that she had a seizure in the bath and drowned, aged 12 and a half, in five minutes on a Saturday morning while I was arranging for my son to have a lift to a quiz that he was attending in town. So I was organising that. She was in the bath with her best friend around who'd had a sleepover. And um, in just five minutes... Gabby drowned and I didn't even realise she was still in the bath. I thought she'd got out. Um, and it's every parent's worst nightmare, isn't yeah. it? That you are taking care of one child and while you're looking after their well-being, another child dies. And for any of your listeners who've seen the film or read the book, The Shack, which I absolutely love, that's exactly what happens to Mac, the main character. Mm -hmm. He is attending to his son, who uh, he is worried might be drowning and his daughter goes missing at the same time. And uh, that's kind of what happened to me. Yeah. And I, I, I gather, wasn't it then compounded by the fact you had loads of media attention, the last thing you'd want? That is true. And it was kind of weird because I'd just spent the previous decade pushing other people into the media I had uh, left that big job as head of sales and marketing at the big company, set up my own training consultancy, and that had morphed into a, a marketing and PR consultancy. And I loved particularly working with charities at the time and still do, still have two charities that I work with now in marketing and PR. But um, I'd been there busy getting the holy grail for my charity clients and some of my business clients of getting them into press, radio and TV and uh, occasionally to prove I could do it for others, I would do it for myself. And now suddenly the boot was very much on the other foot and it was my daughter's tragic story that was on the front page of the newspaper. Mm. And then it went national and I ended up with reporters contacting me day and night. One of them even was doorstepping me. And uh, suddenly it was all eyes were on my mm. family. And uh, of course that was a very difficult time. And also as a Christian, you can imagine, here I was 
this Christian who'd been running, running marriage preparation and enrichment in this huge and growing church, yeah. very well-known church, and my own marriage had failed. And then I got divorced. And then my husband had taken his own life. And now my daughter was dead. And so in terms of being any kind of aspirational Christian, I thought I'd gone from being a good example to probably being the world's worst example of why you wouldn't want to become a Christian. Mm. Because, uh, because crikey, who would want to emulate in any way my mm. life? You know, Nobody goes into marriage expecting any of these things to happen to yeah. you. I certainly didn't. You know, that trajectory that I was on, I thought, you know, I wanted to give, I wanted to serve, I wanted to love others, I wanted to share my resources. I certainly never expected that it would be me down the job centre with no income and taking food vouchers at one point or struggling to bring up my kids or in in-work poverty and, and getting bursaries and and scholarships through university for my son and goodness knows what else. It was so incredibly tough. Yeah. And then on top of that, on top of the incredible financial toughness and the embarrassment and I think shame that we can feel in churches when our relationships fail, whether or not it was anything to do with you, whether you own up to a 5% contribution or a 95% contribution, it is really difficult. And then to have death added into that, several people said, it's like Joe. Yeah. They actually called me Job. It was like every bad thing that could be visited on me was visited on yeah. me, you know, and really, and I, I actually worse than Job, I would say I felt more like Jonah. I was waiting to be thrown overboard <laughs> <laughs> because I started to feel like bad luck, you know, and these things are deep wounds that we carry. And I think there's nothing quite so difficult as feeling we've let God down. Mm. And I guess that's where I was, where I was. Yeah. And I trust you absolutely 100% know that you haven't let him down, that you're an absolute jewel in his crown. Oh, my goodness. Listen, before we started the, the podcast, you were reminiscing about a talk I gave at New Wine, at which, uh, well, why don't you just share that? Because that was powerful. Yeah, I remember reading about your seminars that you were offering in the tents there at New Wine and thinking, wow, this is a guy that I want to go and, um, go and hear. And, and I would say, and this is without word of a lie, that if, if asked, and in fact, I've said this before on, on um, BBC radio, they've said, who are your role models? And I would say, I have two, particularly in relation to my faith, and that's you and Heidi Baker, who I have enormous respect mm -hmm. for. And that's because both of you have laid your lives on the line and not counted the cost of serving Jesus. And I remember you talking in a tent at New Wine saying, I think it was when you launched For What It's Worth, which I read cover to cover and bought many copies of to give away to people. You said this journey could cost you everything and only stand now to tell God that you are willing to pay the price for him if you know you may be required to not count that cost. And myself and the friend I was with, we both stood and I remember feeling a powerful Holy Spirit encounter in that moment. And I knew it could cost me everything. And, and in many ways, I can count myself blessed, Simon. You asked me to name 50 blessings in my life right now, and I absolutely mm. can. But it has also, at times, felt like I've been a one-woman soap opera. <laughs> 
with so many dreadful things happening to me that that I absolutely have counted the cost. But, you know, even when I was on BBC Radio talking about Gabby's death and the presenter said to me, how can you believe in a God who would allow your daughter to die? I said to him, that is not my God. My God has taken my daughter to himself and is giving her the life that she always dreamed of, the life that he always wanted. I just don't get to see it. As far as I'm concerned, I am in the interval. I love going to the theatre and I'm in the interval. I've had the first half and some of it's been brilliant and some of it's been dreadful. But I have the second half still to come mm. and I am eating my ice cream and sipping on my glass of fizz while I'm waiting for that second half in which I will get to enjoy the eternal party in which everything is made right and every eye has its tears dried and I get to live the life I was destined to live with yeah. Gabby but that I have been robbed of. She hasn't been robbed. She's having the best time day and night. No pain, no sorrow. She doesn't even know I'm not there until the moment I rejoin her. I am absolutely convinced of that. Because why would I not want to convince myself of that? I'm either right and I'll have had the best possible life in the circumstances, or I'm wrong, in which case I've lived in hope every day. But I'm in a no-lose situation. And that's why, honestly, put me up against Richard Dawkins, not a problem, because I don't need to explain scripture and I don't need to be a theologian and I don't need to agonise over the minutiae of the terminology because I get to live in hope because of my beliefs. And if that hope means I believe God loves me, never intended these bad things, but once they'd happened, is working them to good mm. and is supporting me through them, and will one day make everything right, then how can I not have the best possible life in those circumstances? And if you take that away from me, you take everything. Yeah. That's head in the oven time, because I would lose all hope. And that's what I'm clinging on to. And when I meet people along the way, Simon, who have had really dreadful experiences, that's what I now mm. say. I've stopped trying to explain anything. I don't have theological debates. I just say, I'm choosing to believe there is a God in heaven who created me and who loves me profoundly and will one day explain everything and make it all right. Mm. And in the meantime, I am right with Billy Graham who said, it is our job to love, it is Holy Spirit's job to convict and it is God's job to judge. Mm. And I aim with every fibre of my being to not judge people, not try to convict people, but just to love yeah. them and leave God to do the other stuff. Hey, folks, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I'm loving the response we're getting from across the world. It's, it's just wonderful to see how encouraging and inspiring it is being and hitting the spot. Listen, if you are being blessed by it, I'd love it. Basically, this happens under the auspices of our ministry, Great Lakes Outreach, which works in the poorest and the hungriest country in the world, which is Burundi. We're having an incredible impact in the toughest of circumstances. We want to carry on supporting those local folks doing a great job. So if you wanted to, greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired you could make a donation there. I'd so appreciate it. Also, it's word of mouth, isn't it? So gossip this, these podcasts to other people, get them to subscribe, give us a great review. 
absolutely wonderful so grateful to you so that's greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired if you want to do a monthly a couple of quid a month or, or a one-off donation we'd be incredibly grateful all right now let's get back to the podcast Can I share a story, a profound story from a train experience I've had just in the last yeah, few weeks at this moment? So here I am on a train, and this is kind of the fruit of that moment at New Wine where I stood and said, whatever, God, whatever for you. I'm on a train, and I shouldn't be in this carriage. I've only got into it because the guard pointed out it was near the buffet car, and I need a cup of tea. And I've accidentally sat in a seat that's reserved for someone else. But this lovely woman says, oh, look, no problem. I'll sit over here. So she sits diagonally behind me. I stay in my seat. And a young man runs in. Turns out he's the same age as my son. And he plonks himself down in the four seat opposite. And then he looks up as the train's just started moving and goes, oh, seat 45. I'm in the right place. And then he goes, is this carriage whatever, H? And I go, no, it's carriage A. He says, I'm in the complete wrong carriage. So I'm in the wrong carriage. He's in the wrong carriage. I'm in the wrong seat. And he starts to talk and we talk for an hour and a half Mm -hmm. until I have to get off this train. And this young man unfolds his life to me. He's a graduate of one of the world's top universities, but he's been working in an Amazon packing warehouse. Mm -hmm. His father was a Muslim. His mother had to escape to Ireland under police protection. She's a Catholic. He was sent away to boarding school He's battled so many things in his life, incredible mental health challenges, sexuality issues. He's told me in an hour and a half about his life, his loves, his battle with mental health. We have covered the whole gamut. We've talked about the God in heaven who loves him profoundly and who never intended these things for him. The fact that that God does not convict him or condemn him but that offers him the opportunity of a loving relationship. We've talked about attachment disorders. We've talked about personality. We've talked about jobs. We've talked about careers. And as the station before mine, the woman who should have sat in my seat gets up. She walks over to me. She looks me in the eye and she said, I should have sat in that seat. And then she looks at the young man and said, because this has been a very stimulating conversation. Hmm. Our conversation's been heard by everyone in the carriage as we've talked about the absolute nitty-gritty of life. Because what I've discovered is everyone wants peace in their lives. They want hope in their lives and they want joy in their lives and they want to be content. Everyone, they just don't know how to get it and they don't often out in the world associate that with what they've experienced or heard of Christianity. Mm. And that's why you and I call ourselves followers of Jesus. And what they don't want is convicting, condemning, hypocrisy. They don't want any of that. What they want is reality and authenticity and nitty gritty, broken, laid down lives. But that there's some hope. Please, God, they say, tell me there's some Mm. hope. And that's what I'm sharing with everyone I meet now. And as long as I'm prepared to be authentic and vulnerable, and some may say oversharing, but you know what? It's working. (laughs) As long as I'm prepared to talk about my life, but then leave space, not talk them to death, not depress them, not have them in tears, 
just leave space for other people to think through how they might respond to that. I'm just dropping ripples in a pool. And instead of trying to fix it for God and pull it off for God, I have now released myself from that. And I am so much healthier and happier as a result. And I believe I'm a better friend and a better walker along the way to Emmaus with anybody who comes alongside me because I've stopped trying to know it all. I've stopped trying to fix it all. I just care and I'm compassionate and I'm empathic and I'm listening. And that's what I offer in my walking. I literally walk the road with people Mm. now. And listen profoundly. Faye, uh, if I can say it, you are so beautiful. Um, listen, we, we, I, I know there's loads more to cover in your chronology, we, and, and yet we've run out of time. I just, I do want you to talk briefly um, about hope walking. You've, you say walking your way back to health works. I know this because I am walking, talking proof of its healing powers. I'm just quoting from your website. And uh, even lo- an hour before the podcast, you're out there walking and coming alongside someone. I mean, it's, it's, it's your gift. Yeah. Tell us, you got. To, two minutes can you tell us about hope walking and the business you set up and uh yeah last thoughts sure well i've been in this incredible healing program down south on the kent coast that was recommended to me for people who've been through grief loss and trauma and uh, it's a psychotherapeutic program within a christian context it's unique and the only one of its kind in the uk and i was fortunate enough to get a place there self-funded um it is the most amazing Uh, program and during that time I decided that I no longer wanted to be my old self and live in the frenzy of the media and under the media spotlight and pushing other people into the media that I wanted to do two things I wanted to help others particularly women and I wanted to walk and keep on walking so I've taken a 180 degree turn away from not only the person I was the broken and damaged person Uh, with all this healing and reflection that I've done during lockdown, but also to set up this new business, Hope Walking. And I run modern day pilgrimages for people of any and no faith. I don't proselytize. If they're interested in Jesus, I will tell them. If they've had a lot of damage or trauma from church or, or other Christians or just don't want to know about faith, then that's fine. I will still share these healing therapeutic practices that I have discovered have helped me enormously to shed the trauma, grief and loss that I've been carrying since the day I was relinquished at nine days old. And I'm sharing that with anyone I meet now, personally and professionally. So anyone can join me on a hope walk. And my aim is to complete my book. I will get that out and into the uh, into the public sphere, God willing, this coming year. And that's Life After Love. It's the story of 10 women of whom I am one who've been through grief, loss and trauma. And one of the ways that people can connect with me is to come on a walk with me. So if they read the book or if they've been mm. through really challenging life circumstances, then that's an opportunity for them to come on a walk and talk more about where they're at in oh. life. Brilliant. Well, listen, we'll put that in the blurb, um, hopewalking.co.uk, the book, look out for it, Life After Love by Faye Smith. Faye, it's been such a treat. It's been, I mean, so I feel really emotional as I've engaged with your journey and I'm sure it's touched many, many listeners' hearts and, and yeah, oh, it's just very, very powerful. God bless you. I think you're a complete rock star. It's totally the wrong word. Much, much more deep and profound than a rock star, but God bless you in your onward journey and uh, thanks so much for your time. 
Oh, more than welcome. And uh, God bless everybody who listens. And please do feel free to connect with me through my Hope Walking Facebook page. Brilliant. Okay. Hey, folks. Wow. (sighs) Breathe deeply. And um, I pretty confident that you will have been inspired, touched, challenged by this. So share it, share it with someone you know that is um, hurting, that would be ministered to through this. It's really helpful if you gave us a top quality review on Spotify and iTunes, because that just means the algorithm brings it in front of more people. And uh, I love it how these stories from friends, different walks of life are, are impacting so many across the nations. It's just fabulous. So if you want to be in touch with me, simongilbo.com or any of the social media platforms, I want to thank uh, Adam Thomas Steer for the editing and Mike Sandyman for the mixing. Great team they are and uh, you guys have got another fantastic person next week so have a good week and in the meantime toodaloo